Welcome back to the Home Care Podcast. I'm your host, Managing Editor Kristen Easterling. Each month, I'll bring you fresh interviews with home care experts and providers just like you, with the goal of helping you run your business better. Today is another great chat, so let's dive in. Somewhere around 77% of adults age 50 and older want to remain in their homes for the long term. But recent research has found that as baby boomers age, they have more comorbidities than previous generations at comparable ages. With the pandemic driving a telehealth and care in the home revolution, more health systems and home health agencies are turning to remote patient monitoring as a way to keep patients safe at home. Gary Manning, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Healthcare at PhysIQ, a provider of digital medicine, joins the podcast today to discuss the hospital at home model and why the future is here now. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kristen. Very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're so glad to have you. Um, so let's start with a little bit of your background. How did you get into digital healthcare? So, um, so thank you for asking. It's um, it's actually been a career long um, process for me um, to 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 be in healthcare with the last few years being in digital, um, and I won't go through all of my career because there's there's you know I'm old, so um, so there's a lot. But for the first my first job actually um, in healthcare was actually as a clinical engineer in the UK, um, and you know that really got me very close to the bedside and to see how the interaction between and, and the and the relationship between technology patient and caregiver was so kind of symbiotic um, if it worked well now i also saw many times of course when it didn't work terribly well and then as i've moved into industry and created more innovative solutions and so on that's always stuck with me and the, and probably the underlying thing was how technologies need to be able to to implement or integrate into their fabric of healthcare and that really comes from that background of that clinical engineer so um then I, i've always been in healthcare i went into the private side of course um i was on a cardiac business then in patient monitoring then about 15 years ago got involved in wearables where there was really very few wearables on the market and um and we were not using Wi-Fi and so on, um, and uh, and then and then I moved out to uh, to the west coast of the U.S. Um, to go with a um, join a startup where we had developed the continuous ability to get continuous blood pressure, and then also put all the other vital signs together as well. So now I'm in this continuous monitoring world where I'm monitoring all the vital signs and on all patients because patients are getting older and sicker. But then what I realized was that many of these patients even though we get those signs, if we want to do this in remote care and virtual care, we're missing a specific component, which is the context around those signs. So five years ago, I went into the, the, the area of um, digital health and uh, focused on oncology. And then of course, you know, I've done a few things during the last five years and eventually come to where I am now. But you know, the, the goal of digital health for me is a culmination of everything I've done in my career and, and, I, and seeing how care is moving to the outside of the hospital and the four walls. Okay, that sounds awesome. Um, you've had quite the career, it seems. Um, so you're now at PhysIQ. How long have you been there? I've now been at PhysIQ for um, a year to 18 months. I, I did some consulting with them for a few months. Um, and then um, just as they went for a capital raise, and then I joined them a year ago. All right. And tell me a little bit about the company, its history, its mission, um, and a little bit about the flagship product for the home care market. Yeah, sure. So, so the company has actually been in existence for um, over a decade. 
Okay. And uh, and I particularly wanted to join this company. Um, I I got to learn to know the CEO and the uh, and the team and really appreciated their their the integrity, but also their um, their vision and passion and so on of what they were trying to do. Um, the company was founded by three people. All of them had worked together in a former company. Um, none of them in healthcare. They were actually out of the aeronautical industry. Oh wow! They were monitoring mission critical industrial equipment. And uh, and during that time, and those three co-founders are still here, by the way, and one of them is the CEO. And um, and during that time that he was with that company, you know, working on you know seven four sevens, right, and trying to and actually working on uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning that could could to identify engines that are in the air that might be deteriorating, right? And say, okay, we've got a slight deterioration here and you're doing it all remotely while these planes are traveling at 500 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the air and being able to adjust them. And then Gary's, um, Gary Conkright's mother, um, I hope he won't mind me talking about this, but his mother became ill with COPD and, breath and breathing difficulties. And he realized that firsthand, like many of us, that actually it's so much easier to remotely monitor in a 747 than it is a remote patient's chronic illness. So, so it was really around that time. And that, that stuck with me because I have similar things in my history. And then he made it a personal mission to apply predictive analytics and technology to healthcare. And that's now he's attracted this team of people, including myself, who have that experience and really want to change the world for the better, of course, for those, you know, for, to monitor those patients. So the flagship product that they have at um, PhysIQ is called um, Pinpoint IQ. And this is, a, this is an enterprise platform that, is, um, that its core is a device agnostic, which means that we should be able to take any continuous or any, any device, patient monitoring device, apply it to any disease state and also any acuity level. So whatever the patient is, whether they're low risk or high risk, whether it's an oncology patient or a respiratory patient, or whether you, know, you need a spot check device for just checking routine vital signs or a continuous monitor. So it's really the flexibility to be able to can capture a whole universe of patients. And, and then, but the jewel in the crown is what I just said about that aeronautical experience, right? <laughs> is the ability to be able to take all those signs mm -hmm. and symptoms and be able to get this personalized predictive um, analytics engine to identify early, early detection of deterioration that's specific to that patient. So imagine, imagine um, I don't know whether you're familiar with the term um, digital twin. You know, they're, vaguely, they're, vaguely, yeah. Okay, so, so basically what we're trying to do is, is identify or learn that, that, uh, learn that patient and then compare the future of that patient with their digital twin. Okay. Right? So, so I've already got a profile for this patient. So as they deteriorate, they deteriorate compared to what they do. This is critically important if you're a, you know, an elderly person with, you know, two or three chronic diseases. You know, if you're, and the way healthcare typically is, is, you know, it's, and, and just to be, um, you know, very obvious about this, if your heart rate goes above 100, that's probably not good for most people, right? <laughs> no. So, so but, but if, um, but with a one particular patient, it might be that your heart rate probably it's bad for you if it goes above 85. Okay. So now I'm going to compare to yourself and I'm going to give that, that indication that you're deteriorating to the clinician so the clinician can intervene earlier on that patient when the patient may not have even recognized that there's a deterioration happening. So it's trying to get it as early as early as possible mm -hmm. by using those predictive analytics. Okay. 
artificial intelligence is just this big kind of nebulous term and I'm seeing it more and more applied to healthcare in this way is kind of, you know, you're talking about the predictive analytics, how much is there a hands-on human behind this? Um, and how much of it is your, your program running? Um, because I'm sure you've seen the news. Google's Lambda is apparently sentient. <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah. you know, I, 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 I wish I, I wish I could remember there's a, there's a so actually I do remember the statement so the statement that stuck in my mind was um, AI is not going to replace clinicians but clinicians that don't embrace AI may struggle right because there's going to be because AI is going to be it's going to become universal and it's and it's not supposed to be this kind of scary hokey stuff this is supposed to be that look while you so while you can't be with that patient particularly in healthcare, then is there something that can be in the background that can be just monitoring that patient, keeping an eye on things and so on, as if, and, uh, and, then, and then be able to alert you early. And, and what we're really trying to do here is, is two things. One, and if you, you know the hospital very well, at least that hospital environment. So you, what you would want if you went to an emergency department is you want that smartest, most sophisticated, most skilled, most um, emotionally um, connected triage nurse. Who can just look at the patient and say, I'm going to take you out back immediately to the physicians and so on, because, <laughs> because you're, yeah. there's something not going right. Or the other patient, well, maybe you can sit in the waiting room. So that's the first piece. So I, so we're trying to replicate that, that style of clinicians so that, and the physicians and clinicians love these triage nurses, right? Because they, they trust them and they say, okay, if you think I should see this person, that's it. That's what we're trying to do. The second part is in 80% of patients that are in a hospital, and I know we're talking about remote home care, but 80% of patients in a hospital have that nurse that's able to walk into that patient's room every few hours and look at the signs, look at the symptoms, and again, use their intuition to determine whether that patient is deteriorating. And then they'll call the physician and say, or the nurse practitioner or so on, and say, there's just something not right with this patient. That's what we do. So it's not going to replace that clinician, but it's going to feed the clinician more information so they can act on it and it works in that, you know, that that congruence, if you like. Okay, and that kind of that kind of brings me to my next question: is you know, you're talking about this hospital level of care with this uh, backing, but there's so many definitions out there of hospital at home. What yes, does that is. mean to you? What does that mean to PhysIQ? Yeah, you, well, you're absolutely right that there are terms that are being introduced by um, you know from payers and um, you know people like CMS and so on as well. You know, what we see at VizIQ of, of that care at home is this is really, uh, it's virtual care, but it's also this kind of hospital without walls, right? So so, so a few years ago, um, when they, a few years ago in a hospital, they created this thing called the rapid response team because they realized that um they, they, and, they, and this was to identify patients that are on the general care floors that might be deteriorating. Right? So the rapid response teams were generally at, taken from, generally, not all the time, but generally from the intensive care unit. Okay. Right? And the intensive care unit was this, where if you went up to an intensive care unit in most hospitals, there's a big, you know, the big oak doors, no windows, big sign, do not enter, only, you know, really smart people can come in here. <laughs> okay. So it was this kind of, so they, they created this kind of ICU without walls, right? So ICU sans frontier. Now what I see in the virtual care space is we're doing the same thing with the hospital. This is hospital without walls. How do we create this virtual hospital 
but the patient remains in the comfort of their own home, but still has access to the clinical teams as if they were right there in the hospital. That's, that's what it means to me. And it doesn't matter whether you're a low acuity patient who's just trying to manage your, your, um, your chronic disease or in your post-acute um, illness, or if you're, um, if you're a hospital at home in a very acute state. It doesn't matter. It's a, the idea of being able to bridge that, you know, create that digital bridge, enabling that high quality cost-effective care to everybody, patient, provider, and payer. Okay. Yeah. And I think to your point, the comfort of your own home, um, you mentioned earlier, clinicians are able to come in and take the vitals and people need to sleep and they don't get to sleep at the hospital, but something that's just kind of remotely tracking what's going on is probably much better for the patient and they're much more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely times when you need to be in a hospital, of course. Um, and, um, but, you know, and I was thinking about this earlier as I was, I was thinking about our conversation here, you know, it's okay if you, you know, if you're a healthy individual and, um, and you maybe go and see a doctor once or twice a year, right? Maybe you don't care that much about virtual care and remote you know, solutions, or if you go to the hospital once every five years, but if you're in and out of the hospital, if you're a heart failure patient and you're going to the hospital, maybe, you know, six times a year at best, and you're an oncology patient and so on, you, you, you know, the, then it, the idea that I could bring the clinician to you an idea that I can passively collect information that would be that would usually only be gained in a physical environment, but I can do it in a virtual environment and still get the same level of care, if not better, is tremendously important. And, and to your point about the, you know, it's hard to sleep is the probably one of the best things to to uh, to help people, um, you know, to get better. Yeah, yeah, hospitals are very noisy, very bright. They turn the lights on when you when they want to turn them on, when they need to be turned on and so on as well. So um, yes, the comfort of their own home is a real attraction. Absolutely. So one of the things that um, if you're dealing with a chronic condition uh, or multiple chronic conditions, you're going to have a cardiologist, you're going to have a primary care physician, you're going to have um, a nurse and a physician's assistant and all these people overseeing your care. How does this technology help those healthcare providers work more collaboratively and how does that improve patient outcomes? Yeah. So, so, it's, so that is, I think it's actually interesting. We're going through this, we're going through this kind of metamorphosis or this change right now. Right. So, so we have worked, I have personally worked with physicians where we are implementing virtual care and they are sharing data with us to say, here is where we believe we prevented readmissions, right? So, the, so a cri one criteria, so let's, let's deal with that first before we talk about the patient experience first. So a large part of this is how do I, how do I either prevent patients coming into the hospital or, or how do I prevent them coming back once they've been in the hospital? And even now we'll go through the patients and say, well, what about this patient? Why did that patient come back? And the amount of times there's a, there's a pause and a, well, it was just easier to bring them back. Right, because our infrastructure is here now. It's not always, but but the hospitals are going through this learning process, right? So they recognise that this patient could have been um, treated outside of the hospital, but they might not have all of the infrastructure in place yet to be able to easily uh, implement that that th those that therapeutic management as if compared to if it's in the hospital. But that's an evolution, you know. We go. That's what we're evolving right now as they as healthcare becomes more trusting, and so on. And we have the communication paths for let's take all that information I'm getting from the patient, even if they're in their home, let's route it through into the electronic medical record system, which is the 
which is the go-to solution, you know, or the go-to system for all healthcare, right? And then be able to do that collaboration within the electronic medical record system as part of that virtual care and enable communication as well. So you still have, you still have that feeling as a patient that I've got a team that's communicating about me and I'm, and I'm actually part of that team. So, so you try and take away that kind of the, the classic, um, the patient in the bed with a whole team of people around her, but nobody's interacting with the patient, right? Now that's evolved as well over time, but there's this, chat, there's this possibility as if you move that patient into a virtual area that actually you might create that scenario where you're not really talking to the patient. So I think digital technologies have to ensure that we do maintain all that communication, including the patient. Okay. Yeah. And you said something about healthcare getting more trusting um, and that there's some obstacles to adoption. So let's kind of talk about those. What I, I live in a fairly rural area, but obviously I have high speed internet. I'm recording this from my house, but what are some of the obstacles to getting this technology into the homes, to getting physicians to prescribe the technology and getting patients to use it? Yeah. So another great question. So, so, um, so one of them would be patient engagement, of course, um, and, I'll, and I'll get back to that because that's actually really important. The other one is technology, of course, um, you know, and, and I've been in this space now for, uh, for 15, 20 years or so. And we've talked about, is it feasible for, um, you know, an octogenarian to really interact with their smartphone? A, do they have a smartphone? And then is it convenient for them to be able to interact? And that is, cha that is changing. You know, and I think I think some of this is changing because obviously people are getting older and who've been very used to having smartphone technology. There's also a lot of work being done um, around the psychology of how to use these smart devices as well. And in a way, you bring in geri um, geriatric physicians and geriatric psychologists and so on who can guide companies like ours of how to present this information so it engages them. So that's the technology. The third piece is... Um, to me is probably the payment um, structure as well, right? So, so if, if, I, if a physician and a provider gets paid because I turn up to their physician office, but if, but if I do it remotely and virtually, then I don't get paid, then that's of course, you know, that drives me to go to the hospital, go to the provider, right? So that's changing. So, so people like, you know, CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services have introduced very innovative payment um, structures over the last few years, which has been tremendous. So that's one of the things. And then there's an overriding thing um, here, Kristen, as well, of, of trust. Everybody has to trust, right? So the patient has to trust that when I go home, even though I'm going to be in, in my home and I'm going to might feel isolated, that, um, that actually my clinician is going to be available for me and when I want them and when I need them and so on. And, and actually... What we're finding is that isolation that they may have found is diminishing because of virtual care as well, because we've put so much effort around it. Now, the patient engagement piece is the most important. And I've been, I told you I've been in healthcare for a long time, healthcare innovation. And we have said since day one, we put the patient at the center of everything we do. And most of the time we think about it, but you know, not it doesn't always get into the design, design process. With digital health, it's, it's, it's a make or break. The, the entire system breaks down if you don't have the tremendous patient engagement from, you know, with that, that virtual care solution. So, so I'll give you an example, if I may. Um, so I, I in, a, in a former um, engagement um, in an oncology company, very similar to what we're doing here, um, I, was in a, I was working with a rural hospital 
where you have maybe one oncologist for 100,000 patients. And, and, and it was in the Northeast, it was in Pennsylvania, in the Northeast, and many of their patients were two, 300 miles away from the hospital, which is hard enough as it is during the summer months. But as soon as you get three, four feet of snow on the ground, that's not so fun anymore, right? So, so, so we gave a simple um, application into the phone that the patient could contact their clinician with anything they wanted at any stage. Right? So, so even down to, I had a lovely dinner with my husband or a lovely dinner with my wife and I'm feeling great. Okay. Just enabled them, right? Nothing about healthcare, mm-hmm. nothing about, you know, sick care, just engagement. And the, the, the clinician to say, that's fantastic. I hope you ate. I hope you didn't overeat and so on and so on and so on. But, you know, I hope you were sensible, but that's great. It just creates that patient engagement piece as well. So, so that's, that I think is some of the things that will, that will drive adoption. Okay. Yeah. And that kind of talks back. I mean, patient engagement is so important, but when you're talking about the patient experience, with this technology, it's, it's got to improve that too. If you can just reach out and say, I had a great time and I feel great when you're dealing with something like congestive heart failure or cancer. Right, exactly. And, and actually the predictive analytics are really interesting because, um, to be able to, to be able to contact the patient and say, is everything okay? And the patient say, yes, yet you can see that there's an index on the clinician screen to say, actually, something's not right. So, so then it, so it allow, enables that there's a sixth sense that you know, clinicians may have where they see something where the patient is not experiencing it, but the clinician to be able to say, to ask more, more probing questions because they know something with confidence that there's something deteriorating. They may not know exactly what it is, but they know. And that, and that I, I can't tell you how, um, how interesting and enthusiastic response is from patients you know, initially they might be concerned or confused, but then when they, when they realize that actually my clinicians are on top of this, when I have any slight deterioration, they know about it and they contact me. Right. And that's the, that's the goal, right? To just right. keep people out of the emergency room if we can. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you've touched on this a little bit. How do we get more of this technology into the home? Um, is there any regulatory items, bills that you're watching? Yeah, so um, I, I mean, it's moving incredibly fast. Um, you know, if I think back to even 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't put Wi-Fi onto a onto a device that was a wearable device. Now we're moving to the stage where um, we're probably all going to be connected to cellular at some stage, even on the small little devices. Devices are getting smaller, they're getting cheaper, and they're getting very comfortable and so on as well. So that's one aspect from a technology perspective. The second piece is, as, as we talked about, was the um, patient engagement. Third is the innovative payments and so on. And then there is also the regulatory piece. So a couple of years ago, um, when we went into the pandemic, CMS again, um, which is great that they're so innovative at this, introduced this hospital at home um, policy, right? Where they, the way, they introduced the waiver, and you, I'm sure you'll know this, but they introduced the waiver that said, look, you don't have to have a nurse on site 24-7, which means if you've done this before, you could do it virtually. And we'll pay you the same amount of money as you would have done if that patient was in the hospital. So now that's tremendous and terrific. That now says virtual care is a thing. You've got to, you've got to incorporate this. We know that many health um, systems around the country, you know, in the very high percentages are all looking at this, but, you know, we're still in the low teens of how many people have adopted, but there's, this is a strategic initiative for the rest of the next year. And, um, 
so, so the bills that we watch are those things such as that hospital at home initiative, right? Which, and, and it's also something that the industry needs to help work with health systems as to, to be able to extract that value. Because you need to be able to say, you know, did we together, and that's that way you bring innovation and healthcare delivery together and make sure it integrates into the fabric of healthcare delivery so that we can say, here's the quality improvement. Here's where we reduced healthcare utilization. We reduced costs. We reduced premiums improve quality, patients feel better, patients and so on. We had more patients on the right dose of medications. We extended life. We reduced readmissions, those kind of things as well. And then, and but that needs to go back to the government so that they can say, yes, this is a real thing. We're going to keep going with this and, and so on. So they're the bills that I watch and to see whether they become in, you know, into and being enacted. All the red tape that you've got to go through. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about... Um, Let's see. So you're watching the hospital at home bill. Um, and then yep. kind of how do you get around that red tape and not around? That's not the right word. <laughs> no, I think it well, I think it's no, Kristen, I think it's um I, I think I know what you're saying. So I you know, quite quite rightly. So it's so so actually let me go back even a little further, actually, and, and not to be too overly verbose, but but you know, I've been involved in many innovative technologies and and the investors in those innovative technologies that don't always know, and I have huge respect for the people that do that, of course, but they don't always understand healthcare to the depth that maybe you need it, are some often frustrated with the conservative nature of healthcare, right? So why wouldn't you just embrace all this new innovation and new technology? And I always try and explain that, look, if I'm, if I've got, if I've got, um, if I need a, a surgical procedure, I'd rather not have the physician get all excited about the fact that he's never done this, he or she has never done this before, and is the first no, time no, we're going to no, try no, this no, new no, thing, no. right? <laughs> That's not how patients like to integrate yeah. with their healthcare. So I, so, so on the one hand, being an innovative mm -hmm. company, you want people to embrace this, but we need to do it in a respectful, conservative manner and understand that it takes it takes time um, to be able to do this. And in general, actually, healthcare. If you have a most innovative um, service or solution, you have the pricing right, it delivers terrific value, why wouldn't everybody want it? It's still going to take you on average 17 years in the US healthcare system to get wow. total adoption. Okay. Five, years okay. to get, five years to get to 20%, 17 years to get full adoption. And you can go back over MRI scanners, CT scanners, and so on. So, 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 the, so the idea... Um, so we're dealing with this very conservative uh, environment, and that's okay. So, so to go back to your, how do you how do you get this, you know, the, over the red tape, if you like, we we have to prove outcomes. So we have to prove the effectiveness. What is the effectiveness of this new new solution, and is it better than what we had yesterday? And it's up to us, and it's contingent upon the innovator as well as on the healthcare system as well to make sure we do that. So if I may, one thing about the predictive analytics is that we worked very closely with the Veterans Affairs um, you know, health system and I'm still doing that for heart failure, for example. So, so we, um, we had a multi-center randomized observation study and we looked, we used our predictive analytics on several hundred patients to determine, can we predict this de deterioration before their hospitalization. And we were actually able to prove and publish, we could do it 10, 10 days in advance. Oh, wow, that's is, impressive. Right, which is about enough time as you need to be able to, you know, to reverse the course of the deterioration for heart failure. So, so they're, they're absolutely the kind of things that you need 
you know, we're dealing with patients' lives. It's really important for them. It's really, you know, and it's a conservative and steady, you know, relationship you have with healthcare and innovation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That is a, that's an impressive data point there, 10 days sooner. Um, so let's back up a little bit. In the intro, I said the future is here now, the future of healthcare is here now. We have robots and AI and predictive analytics and all these things that I still consider science fiction. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's next? What does the future of healthcare look like and how do we achieve that? That's a multifaceted question. Um, <laughs> The, so, so if I, I often think about, um, I'm old enough to remember mainframe computers, right? So where, so, you know, where you'd have this central repository of a computer and the idea that, and there were people running around the world, probably Bill Gates saying, look, everybody's going to have, everybody in the future will have a one, at least one computer in their house. And I counted how many computers I have in my house the other day. And it was, it was in the teens, right? So, so we have gone from having one, I mean, especially if you can consider the phone and iPads and, you know, and everything else as well, we've got lots. And that's because it became a distributed, distributed system. My personal feeling is that the hospitals alone are going to look like mainframes in the, in the future, right? So we are, we are going to distribute healthcare into the patient's home. We'll still have hospitals. You're never going to get rid of those, right? We need, there's great stuff we need to do there. But if you see that the majority of the healthcare spend is for chronic care, chronic care occurs in the, in the home environment mostly, right? Or the sneer for the, you know, hospice or nursing home and so on, right? So, so let's keep the hospitals for acute things and where we need to have them going and manage, put those clinical virtual care and clinical services to the home. And so that's one thing. The second thing is, um, I think that we've talked about a, a lot about quality of life over the years, right? And, and that, that, I think with digital health, they're the kind of things that you are going to we're going to see a lot more of, you know, and if I, if you take one um, of bladder control, right. So as you get older, maybe you don't have as much bladder control, which can be embarrassing. Well, and we, we you know, the phys IQ does not do this, but we can take the information and be able to put it into, into analytics and be able to predict this, but you might have sensors that can be, you know, placed in the belt, for example, around your waist that can measure how much fluid there is in your bladder, and then, you know, and then you can identify what, what point do I need to, to, to empty my bladder. And it's all about to improve my quality of life. So that's just one example. So I think that's the way healthcare is going to change. It's going to be more distributed and it's going to be centered on quality of life. Quality of life is such a huge part of it too, because I mean, it, it, as you get older, it does deteriorate, but you want to live it to your fullest as long as you can. To the very last day. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Um, yep. Gary, those are all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you really want to tell me about or tell our listeners about? You know, I think there's there's one just a, a, a statistic. So thank you for that. So just a statistic. If we if we think about um, the the size of the population that we want to um, to take care of, so so there are in the U.S. there's there's six thousand hospitals, and there's and, and it's 6,000 hospitals, about 6,000 hospitals, but it's been about 6,000 hospitals for 15, 20 years. But the population has increased and a million hospital beds. And that stayed pretty much the same for the last at least 15, 20 years that I've been looking at this, yet the population wow. is growing, Yeah. right? Wow. So we've got, a, we've got an aging population. We've got patients living with chronic diseases longer. We've got the same number of beds that we had before. So, so, the, so healthcare has to evolve and it has to change. And that's why you're seeing such dramatic changes. 
And then you also see that there are 37 million patients that are discharged from a hospital every year, but yet 15% of them come back to the hospital within 30 days. And 20% of those patients, it's regarded that could have been prevented. So, so, the, so the patient population, if you just took it to that patient population, that's an enormous discomfort for the patient that we didn't necessarily have to do, right? We could have overcome this. So, so there, you know, just to put some statistics around what we're trying to do and how big this is, um, and it's going to come down to, do you have the right level of monitoring to be able to look after that patient? Do you have the analytics to be able to identify the patients that are deteriorating? How do you triage appropriately, you know, and so on? And how do you deliver the right care to the right patient at the right time? And, and that's what the companies such as PhysIQ are going to be able to deliver and to do that. And there's a there's a reimbursement angle to it too because CMS penalizes you if you have too many patients bouncing back and forth in 30 days. So I'm that's sure that's right. part of it. That's absolutely. There's nothing magical around the 30 day apart from the payment stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but it but it has but what it has done though it's allowed people to focus on it right and say this is something that we need to save you know that you need to address. How are you going to do that? We can't do it as CMS alone. We can't do it as payers, we can't do it as providers, and we can't do it as innovators. We all have to collectively come together to say, how do we do this? You know, and we become, and it focuses our attention very much, you know, so. Absolutely. Um, that is all I had today. Um, and I thank you for joining us. It was an insightful conversation, and I learned a lot. <laughs> it was a real pleasure. If anybody wants to get hold of me, by the way, um, then uh, my email address is gary.manning at physiq.com or of course you can get hold of me on linkedin as well but but this has been a real um, delight thank you so much for inviting me it's um it's something i hope you can tell that i'm passionate about this and the uh, the whole team here is passionate about it and you know we're, we're looking to make uh, quality of life improve for everybody the home care podcast is a production of home care media and cahaba media group producers of home care magazine the home care now newsletter home care product watch and so much more visit homecaremag.com for more information you can find the Home Care Podcast at homecaremag.com slash podcast, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen.